Well, my dad worked in construction for his entire adult life. Anyone work in construction in here? You guys? Yeah, a few of you. So you guys will really get a lot of the the analogies this morning. Uh, I had to actually call him up and I wanted to ask him a few questions. This is the nice thing when you have a good relationship with your father and you can can make those phone calls and get analogies for sermons. It's great. (laughs) So he worked for different construction companies throughout his life in Houston. He was a home builder. He actually at one point had a custom home company himself. Uh, He he owned it and he built some custom homes. Now I personally learned very little about all that. I am, Libby will tell you, I'm not the most handy person in the world. I'm not going to claim to be an expert on home building this morning. But it did come to my mind a lot this week as I was reading the text and studying in fact, so I went, I went ahead and I called him. I wanted to have a short discussion on how homes are built, uh, which was helpful. So when you build a home, the first thing that the builder has to do after, after they've cleared out the land, which is itself quite important, really, the first thing though, that the builder does on the house that is, it's, itself uh, is to establish a foundation. And there, there are a bunch of ways of doing this, apparently. I thought, I mean, I lived in Houston my whole life. All I ever knew was slab foundations. And then I realized, oh yeah, if you have a basement, you have to have something different. So there's a whole lot of conversations that we had to have there. But there are a bunch of ways that you can do this, establishing a foundation. You can, you can dig rebar into the ground and then uh, to find the stable soil and then put the concrete slab around that. And that's more common in Texas where we don't have those kind of basements. Uh, there's a foundation that digs down to the solid ground, like really far deeper, and then pours these concrete columns to establish the foundation on top of. And there's other types as well. But my point is, there has to be some kind of foundation to build, that, to build upon. It accomplishes a few things, this foundation, right? First, it, it has to be able to serve as the base to the rest of the house. Second, it has to be stable, right? So that the house doesn't, it doesn't shift, which is very important. It, and then thirdly, it has to anchor the house in some way. I never thought about this, but a foundation really has to anchor the house to the rock of the earth beneath. You don't think about that very often. I mean, the house is heavy, but things can happen. Uh, and so you want that house to be anchored. Now, a lot can go wrong with foundations though, right? I mean, it's one of the primary things that when you're looking for a house to buy, that you, know, you check the inspection reports and you're checking to make sure that that foundation is, is stable and it's not cracked or any of those things. If the foundation needs repair on a house, I'm out. I'm not buying that house. Because either, A, the house will at some point literally fall apart. I mean, if you go into houses where the foundation's cracked and you try to start opening doors, you notice that the, eventually they, they can't even open well because they get, the doors get shifted in the frames, all sorts of stuff like that. The house will literally eventually fall apart. And, or B, right, fixing it. You can't fix a broken foundation, but it costs a ton of money because so much is built upon the top of it. And here's the thing that connects all this to our text today. The same kind of principles of stability, uh, those kinds of things, are all inherent in the foundation of the church. The church's foundation, it must be able to serve as a solid base to build a kingdom, to build the church upon. It It has to be able to anchor the church to God, and it has to be stable so that the church doesn't shift. Lucky for us, according to our text today, the foundation of the church is Christ. Not only that, the cornerstone, the integral parts of the structure of the church are also Christ. And not only that, but the very rock that the church is built upon, the solid rock, is Christ. So as we open the book of Ephesians, or the book, excuse me, as we open to the book of Ephesians uh, to finish up chapter two today, I want you to keep that in mind. 
Right? We must have Christ for our, uh, for our foundation. Because when we don't have Christ for our foundation, we're, we're not built upon the solid rock, but we're built upon what? Sinking sands, yes? <laughs> My hope is built on nothing less. My dad mentioned that a lot of homes are built are built on sand, right? And they have to account for that in their building. So that's when they, they'll dig down to the, the ground and hit the bedrock first. I mean, talk about a vivid analogy, digging down through all of this shifting sands to hit a foundational bedrock. <laughs> and unfortunately, in, in our day, we have many churches who don't do that legwork of laying a firm foundation. And it causes houses, which are full of churches, which are full of people, to collapse, I want to discuss that a little bit further. But first, would you, would you stand as you're able for the reading of God's Word? I am going to focus on verses 20, and 20 uh, through 22 today, but I am going to read from verse 19 just so that we have the full section. It says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having, built, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Father, we thank you that you are fitting us together and you are building us up into a church. And Lord, help us to be a church that rests on the solid foundation that is Christ revealed in your word. Lord, we thank you for your word. And as we open it this morning, And as we think about the truth therein, would you guide us and give us wisdom? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. So before we we dive into the text this morning, I want to frame the sermon just like you would frame a house. (laughs) Right? So first you frame the house and then you put on the drywall and you flush it all out. Right? I think that our text today can be broken down into three main sections. First is the foundation of the house. That's going to be the bulk of it. But then we also will talk about the structure of the house leading into the resident of the house. Somebody has to live in this house that's being built, right? So first and foremost, just as if we were actually building a home, we need to start with the foundation, and that's where Paul starts in Ephesians 2.20. Really, the whole passage that we read, Paul is just building from the ground up, just as any good builder would. You don't start with a person coming to live on the lot with nothing there, Generally, I mean, some people might, <laughs> but you don't generally do that. You don't, you don't build walls before a foundation is laid. Right? And Paul, as he's endeavoring to, to depict the construction of the new covenant dwelling place of God, the church, he works in that same way, from the bottom up. So he starts this analogy by saying that we have, in verse 20, been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, I want to break that down into sort of the two obvious parts that are there. Because you can see there, first, the apostles and the prophets, and then Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. So we have this, two, this kind of two-part section of this foundation. Now, you've got the cement and the rebar in a regular house, so it's maybe similar to that, the slab and the cornerstone. But the purpose here is that it's all building this perfect foundation for the church. So, so first... I want to explain what Paul is thinking here when he says that the foundation is the apostles and the prophets. That might seem kind of strange at first glance because we've already labored a little bit to explain that Christ is the foundation alone, Christ alone. 
right? And that's true and right, so don't misunderstand me. What Paul is not saying here is that him and his fellow apostles or the prophets, they get credit for the building of the church. It's not what he's saying. It's not that it will rise and fall dependent upon them. No, Paul is very clear that it is Christ who is the head of the church. I mean, we can even just look back a little bit to Ephesians 1, 22. When we go back, it says that God put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. And this is repeated a couple of more times throughout the book of Ephesians. Christ is certainly what the church is built upon. And Christ is also who directs the church as its head. But that, that's not what Paul is getting at here in the first part of verse 20 when he's talking about the apostles and prophets. What he's mentioning runs deeper. There's, there's no man who, upon which the church stands, right? but the man, Jesus Christ. <laughs> but my question to you is, what was the purpose of the prophets and the apostles? Why did God commission these men to the tasks that they were called to? And I want to submit to you that the answer is that they guide and instruct us in the true doctrine of who God is, specifically who, who Christ is. And think back to the Old Testament. The prophets would, would bring the word of the Lord to his people, telling them of his commands or even of their impending judgment, but always within the framework of explaining the, the character of God. And certainly always with an eye toward the Messiah who was to come. We can go back and look at several places in the Old Testament where you'd see that, but I actually want to turn your attention instead to the book of Luke, chapter 24, if you'd like to turn there. The prophets reveal God and reveal Messiah, the Messiah to his people, and Jesus tells us this himself in the book of Luke. So Luke 24, these, these followers of Christ, they're on the road, the road to Emmaus after hearing of the resurrection, and Christ appears to them, though he sort of hides his identity from them. In verse 16, it says that their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. Okay, so that's the, the framework of what's happening. As they're talking, they start to explain that their, their sort of disappointment, I guess, that Christ has been, had been killed because they thought he was the Messiah. Well, and, and then Jesus, what does he do? He rebukes them for that lack of faith, right? Look in verse 25. He says, then he said to them, he being Jesus, he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken. Wow. And then he goes on to say, Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Jesus is telling them that they ought to know better. As people who have studied the scriptures, they ought to know. They ought to have seen Jesus in those scriptures and not be shocked at all these different things that had come to pass. Right, and then look at the very next words in verse 27. This is some of the most important words for biblical interpretation in all of Scripture. It says, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus shows them, these two disciples, he shows them from Moses and from all the prophets, which is code language for all of the Old Testament. Okay? It's all there. Uh, that it's meant to reveal himself. And this is why when we're, when we're talking in like our Deuteronomy class in Sunday school, one of the things that I always try to do is I try to, to bring the, 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 the passage that we're talking about and show how it reveals Christ in some way. I mean, the purpose of the prophets in God's plan of redemption was to reveal Christ to his people. And, and they do so infallibly. 
They do so infallibly because all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. 2 Timothy 3.16. So these God-breathed texts show us Christ, who is the cornerstone of our faith. And if the prophets show us Christ ahead of time, it's the apostles who flesh out the doctrine of Christ after the fact. Remember, we're talking about apostles and prophets as foundational here. So Jesus bestows the authority onto the apostles in Matthew chapter 10. Now that whole chapter is fundamental, so your homework today is to go home and read through chapter 10. (laughs) But for our purposes, I'm just going to point out a few specific verses, starting in verse 1, if I can get to it. Verse 1 of chapter 10 says this, And when he had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. And so the apostles have a special endowment of the Spirit to accomplish these things. Jump down to verse 19, the second part of it. It says, For it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. It will be given to you. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. So God speaks through the apostles directly. Later on in verse 27, Jesus says to them, Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And whatever you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. Jesus' teachings are are amplified through the apostles. They're not changed. They're not added to. They're amplified through the apostles who were actually taught directly by Jesus. And then you can look at verse 40. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. The apostles come by authority of Christ in such a way that their acceptance or rejection is by extension an acceptance or a rejection of Christ himself. I need to move on, but my point in all this talk of prophets and apostles is that their God-inspired words as recorded in Scripture, because their purpose is to reveal Christ perfectly, those words are the foundation for the church. This, This dwelling place of God that Paul is referring to back in Ephesians 2. So the foundation is still Christ, just revealed in the words of the prophets and the apostles. And Christ himself. And Paul is clear on that as he then calls Jesus the chief cornerstone, which is meant to be the stone upon which the rest of the structure rests. Now, the reason this is so important for you to understand is because the implication of this verse is that a true church, a true church is bound to and upheld by the word of God. This book. And this is where the church comes into real conflict with false churches. This is going to sound harsh, and frankly, I mean it to. There are many, many buildings out there with the word church emblazoned on their signs that are false churches. They're false because they've, they've let the foundation rot away beneath them. Their building has spiritually crumbled. And the person who's supposed to reside in that building... God and the Spirit has left them to their own devices. There's, there's been a clip circulating around the internet where a really popular, you'll know, you would know if I named him, a really popular teacher outright disregards the scriptural teaching on homosexuality, saying he knows the clobber passage, he understands the biblical arguments, but he disregards them in order to pander to the world's sensitivities instead of bowing to God's commands. 
This is an example of a man who has eroded the teachings of the prophets and the apostles so much that he's allowed himself to become a false teacher, tickling the ears of the world instead of standing firm on the word of God. When you abandon doctrines of prophets and the apostles, the doctrines of the prophets and the apostles, you abandon any right to call yourself a church of God and have instead become an amphitheater of worldliness, a social club, and frankly, you put the people in your congregation into mortal peril. I want you to listen to what the Apostle John records God speaking in the book of Revelation to the church of Pergamos, which is known as the Compromising Church, in Revelation chapter 2. So it's known as the Compromising Church. And it says this, starting in verse 14. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent... Or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Wow. The compromising church. The one that has abandoned their commitment to the word of God in order to bend to idolatry and sexual immorality. The two biggest issues in modern America today. Idolatry and sexual immorality will be judged with the sword of God in the last day. How dare we seek to build a house for God and then allow it to be filled with the things that he hates? We stand on the word of God no matter what the world says and we don't apologize for it. Tony's mentioned in the past couple of weeks that the United Methodist Church is crumbling to pieces, frankly. They're finally splitting into two denominations. The Global Methodist Conference, or the GMC, where the conservatives are tending to go, the conservative Bible-believing churches are moving to this denomination, for the most part. And for the most part, the United Methodist Church, where the theologically liberal churches, churches that tend to disregard the clear teaching of Scripture, are mostly staying. I want you to mark my words. In the next decade, you will see the UMC fall into irrelevance. The United Methodist Church will be irrelevant while the global Methodist Church will receive the blessing of God. Mark my words. Why? Because they build their house on the right foundation. The one that cannot be moved. And so they can reasonably expect that God will dwell among them. Church, please, please understand that this is of the utmost importance. You can't have a house without a foundation. You can't have a church without the true, unblemished Christ as revealed in the Word of God. Don't, don't just accept that a church must, they must be doing good work in the, because they're in the community, they're doing charitable things, all these nice little fluffy stuff, okay? Don't just accept that, because if their foundation isn't Christ, if it's not built on the Word, then for all of those things, they're simply leading people down a path to destruction, And we will not be party to that except to call them to repentance. 2 John is extremely clear about this. 
We don't partner with false teachers, with false churches. You read from 2 John. <clears throat> 2 John, verse 9, it's just one chapter, so just verse 9, says this. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. And now listen to this. I mean, if you see that, if they do not have the doctrine of Christ, they do not have God. That's exactly what I've been talking about for the past few minutes. But look what John says next in verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he, and listen here, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Do not even greet him. You can't get much more clear than that. When we look at these false teachers, our response is, is if it's anything other than calling them to repentance, we're doing it wrong. We must not disregard the words of the Apostle John here. We must be discerning. We must be wise as serpents and innocent as doves because we do not wish to share in their evil deeds. Ian Hamilton, he says it this way very helpfully. The present tragedy of the Christian church in the West is not that it's antiquated and unwilling to march with the times, but that it has, by and large, walked in step with the times, abandoning the glory of the cross, the penal substitutionary atonement of God's incarnate Son. When you remove or tamper with a building's cornerstone, the building will collapse. This may all sound super confrontational to you, Maybe you're sitting there squirming. You're a little uncomfortable. And that's because we've spent far too long being discipled by the world rather than being discipled by the word. Scripture is clear here. If we want our church to be an acceptable dwelling place of God, we make our foundation Christ and his word and his doctrines. And we do not allow false teaching a back door into our home. Our foundation is Christ, revealed in the doctrine of the apostles and prophets. And that's what our church is built on. But as we move on, I want to consider next, what is the church built of? What is the structure of the building? We've talked about the foundation, but what is the structure? Well, there's two aspects to this over the course of the next couple of verses in Ephesians. Uh, Let's just read verse 21 in the first part of verse 22 says this, in whom the whole building, Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together. And I'm going to stop there. I know that seems weird. So in this, I think that the structure is kind of revealed in the same way as what you see in construction. When When you look at a brick house, right, you can break it down in different ways. I can look at a wall and I can say, that's a wall. Or I can look at the wall and I can say, those are bricks. And both of those things can be true at the same time and are true at the same time. In studying this passage, I think several different commentators helped me to look back at the prior section of Scripture, right, verses 14 through 18. And remember, in those verses, it talks about how the blood of Christ reconciles Jew and Gentile, breaks down that dividing wall of hostility and makes them into what? One new man. This analogy of the building that Paul is using now, it accomplishes the same sort of purpose in one sense. So let me back up a little bit and explain that. The the point of this passage of Scripture 
is this whole passage that we're talking about this morning is to compare the church to a building, right? And, and that means that certain parts of the building correspond to certain parts of the church. Well, the, the part that's in view in the first part of the passage is Christ, who is our chief cornerstone. And what does a cornerstone do in a building? It's literally called a cornerstone for a reason. It brings together two things, two walls. So it seems what Paul is saying here is that you have one wall, Jews, and another wall, Gentiles, and they come together. Literally in the verse, they are being fitted together to become a holy temple in the Lord, which is pretty miraculous if you've been here for the past few weeks and you've listened to all we've talked about in the previous verses about how Gentiles were what? Far off and have been brought near and have been made into fellow Uh, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, as you see in verse 19. But beyond that sort of corporate identity, we also need to look at the individual identity implied there. We've got the walls, but we also have bricks. Paul says that the building is being fitted together, and then in verse 22 repeats that you also are being built together. So, so where Paul was referring to how the, the sort of universal church at large, all of, Christen, all of Christendom, is being brought together, fitted together with Christ, here in 22, he's talking about the local church body in Ephesus being built together to be that dwelling place. And there's a couple of implications here. The first, quicker one, is that this implies that our local church, Trinity Baptist Church, is, is truly its own form of a temple of God's presence. We, members of Trinity, are are being built together for that purpose, to be a dwelling place of God. So we have autonomy as a local church because God is working in a special, unique way here in Wamigo and here in this church. But we also are a part of the overall universal church, which means that we should seek to agree with the church at large as much as possible, to, to be of one mind, as it talks about in Philippians 2. And that's not always perfectly possible, but it should encourage us to view our brothers and sisters in Christ who may have slightly different walls, slightly different looking walls, but the same foundation. We should view them with honor and respect, and we should love them as brothers and sisters in Christ. The the second implication about that, that individual nature of being built together is that we, individual bricks even, need to be made holy this is where the passage that was read for us this morning from 1 Peter comes into play. David read for us 1 Peter, uh, which is really helpful. And if you want to turn there in your Bibles again, we'll look at it a little bit more in depth. <clears throat> Peter here, at the end of chapter 1, he's talking about a lot of the same stuff that I've been mentioning this morning, honestly. He's saying that we seek to be purified by the Spirit by being born again in, in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 24. Right, through the word of God which lives and abides forever. And, and he says, now this is the word by, which by the gospel was preached to you. Therefore, he says, you should be changed and made holy in all the ways he lists at the beginning of chapter 2. And then he says this in chapter 2, verse 4, which I think is incredibly important. You come to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Do you see the same sort of analogy at play here that Peter is using, that Paul uses in Ephesians? 
We individually, as Christians, come to Christ as a living stone, a brick, if you will, (laughs) to be built up into a spiritual house where spiritual sacrifices are offered to God. But this time it's talking about individually. You have this sort of three-layer temple in the New Covenant. The universal church, the local church, Trinity Baptist Church, and then the believer, the individual as a temple. And Peter even goes on to use the same quote of Isaiah 28, 16, uh, to identify Christ as the chief cornerstone of the temple, which is what Paul is alluding to in Ephesians 2. So back in Ephesians 2, 22, if we're keeping 1 Peter in mind, I think the overall implication is this. And listen here, if you didn't hear anything that I just said, listen to this. We have to be shaped into bricks that are acceptable to be built together. You don't just... You don't just take rough-hewn stone and then throw it together and hope that it's going to form a house. You can't slap it together into a wall. You can, but it won't end well. The wall is either going to fall to pieces or it's going to have holes everywhere, exposing the inside to the elements. I think one helpful illustration here can be found in the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 5 and 6. And this this passage is, is helpful on several fronts. In In chapter 5, Solomon, he's getting ready to build the temple, and he's gathering all these materials, right? And one thing that I think is really striking is that he sources the wood for the temple, not from within Israel. He doesn't go and cut down trees from Israel. He reaches out to Lebanon, which is a nation that's outside of the covenant of God. He doesn't doesn't take local trees. He opts for these great cedars of Lebanon that are mentioned in verse 6 of chapter 5, commanding that they be cut down and brought to Jerusalem for the construction of the temple. And if you look in verse 9 of chapter 5, it says this, My servants shall bring them down from Lebanon to the sea. I will float them in by rafts, or I will float them in rafts by sea to the place you indicate to me, and will have them broken apart there. Then you can have them taken away, and you shall fulfill my desire by giving food for my household. This is the king Hiram of Lebanon talking to Solomon. So these great cedars, which were far off, they're brought near, they're stripped, they're crushed, they're cut into the proper shapes and sizes for the construction of the temple. And then what's so great about chapter 6 is you see all of these details about how the wood had to be carved and changed in order to make the temple into the specifications that God had decreed for it. Besides just the, the size and the shape of the boards for the walls, you have these ornate carvings of flowers and angels, and then you have everything overlaid with gold. So just like the wood for the temple that Solomon built, we as individual Christians need those things. We need to be shaped, we need to be carved, and we need to be overlaid with gold. Shaped. When I, mean, when I say shaped, Romans 12.2 reminds us not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect, the perfect will of God. We have to be shaped. We have to be conformed in that way to the will of God through sanctification. And that's how we get to the point where we can be easily fitted together into the walls of this house that we've been talking about. So we have to be shaped. We have to be carved. I think 1 John, or not 1 John, sorry, John 15 is very helpful here. John 15, Jesus says in verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he, what? Prunes. 
He prunes that it may bear more fruit. This pruning or this carving, which is it's done through the trials and tribulations and the providence of God. It's meant to shape us into this, the kind of ornate carvings that are pleasing to God. What does it say in James? That rejoice when trials come because they make the, the man perfect. <laughs> and those things are acceptable for God's temple. So we need to be shaped and carved and we need to be overlaid with gold. This is probably the most important. Back in 1 Kings 6, you read that Solomon, he didn't just leave the unfinished cedars of Lebanon in the temple. Listen to this in chapter 6. Verse 22, starting in verse 21, excuse me. It says this. So Solomon overlaid the inside of the temple with pure gold. He stretched gold chains across the front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. The whole temple he overlaid with gold until he had finished all the temple. Also, he overlaid with gold the entire altar that was by the inner sanctuary. And saints, just like the foreign wood of Solomon's temple... We also have to be covered, except we're covered with something far, far greater than gold. We're covered with the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is, this is why sanctification is so important. This is why the mortification of sin in your life is so important. We're meant to be a temple of the living God. A holy and righteous God that will not dwell in a temple that's exposed to sin. So we lean on Christ to patch our holes. We lean on Christ to trim our excesses, to make us into that holy temple. And that brings us to the, the final point that I really want to show you from Ephesians 2 today, which is that all of these things, the preparation of this house that Paul has been figuratively building, is to prepare a dwelling place for God. Who is the resident of the building? God is the resident of the building, the holy resident. So Paul, to close out this section before he shifts gears a bit in uh, chapter 3, he says in verse 22 that you are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now this should make a lot of sense given all that we've been talking about. All this, but all this talk about a temple, I mean, what is a temple anyway? When you think of, when you think of temples, you really ought to connect it with, with deity in some way. We don't call anything else a temple. Like even places where kings and, and, and presidents live, we don't call them temples. We might call them palaces or something like that, but that's not a temple. The very word temple implies the presence of deity. And that's why it's so significant when, and by the way, especially in the ancient world, <laughs> If you think about the amount of temples that were built to these false gods, uh, then they, Paul knew very well what he was doing when he said temple. That word temple implies that presence of a deity. Uh, so that's why it's so significant when Peter, when Paul, when other apostles, they all say that we're being built up into a holy temple. It has to do with God's presence. But I want to point out something to you about temples. Uh, have you ever been, anyone ever been to a temple, like, like to a false god somewhere, like a temple in Greece or in Europe somewhere or India. I've been to Greece. I've been to a couple. Went to the, the uh, Areopagus. Not the Areopagus. The Acropolis. Sorry, I have that wrong. Uh, Areopagus is in Rome. So the Acropolis and the Temple of Poseidon are two that I went to specifically. And the one thing that's really clear when you're walking around there in those temples that you start to see is you notice that they are built for a very specific purpose. And that's to pay homage to whatever the deity is. Okay, all of the 
all of the way the structures are laid out, even the directions the structures face sometimes. Uh, when you're at the Temple of Poseidon, you see that it's, it's particularly the statue is facing out towards the sea. And it's on this peninsula. And all these different things. I mean, you can look at all of those and see what I'm talking about. But the structures, the, the iconography, or all the images that you see there, the statues, they're all there in order to give glory to whomever they're dedicated to. Right? That's what they're for. Temples are a place where the glory of the deity is displayed. But we, church, have a leg up over the temples of the false gods. We don't serve a god who can be contained in a statue. Our God is too vast to even be depicted. Whereas the temple of Artemis has in its, it's called a cella, or its, its main chamber, a big stone, dead, lifeless statue of Artemis in Ephesus. Our temple houses the living God. The Holy Spirit indwelling us, guiding us, and leading us into all truth. Now, now understanding that, that it's the Holy Spirit who is the resident of this temple, we have, we have a few things to consider about what that means. Because that's a pretty big deal, right? I mean, the God who created the heavens and the earth is indwelling your heart. And sometimes we treat that like it's this minuscule, unimportant thing. No. Church, the indwelling presence of God in your life is of the utmost importance. I want you to think back to the Old Testament for a minute. Think about every time that God reveals himself and his glory to his people like in a physical, visual way. When Moses asked to see God's glory, what did God tell him to do? Hide yourself in the cleft of a rock, which, by the way, represents Christ. (laughs) Hide yourself in the cleft of the rock. And even then, Moses only caught a glimpse of the glory as it passed by. Why? Because if he were able to be in the full presence of God's glory unprotected, he would just cease to exist because of his sin. And you see that in Isaiah. Isaiah, as he's been being commissioned in Isaiah chapter 6, he's given a vision of the Lord, and the train of his robe fills the temple. And what does Isaiah say when he sees it? Woe to me, for I am undone. That word really means that he was just falling apart at the seams, completely unable to withstand the weight of the full glory of God. And again, why? Well, Isaiah tells us immediately afterward, Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah, because of his sin, is unable to even exist in the presence of God. And he's shown great grace by the angel coming to uh, sear his lips with a coal to remove his sin. Now, Moses... When coming down from the mountain, one more. Moses comes down from the mountain or or out of the Holy of Holies every time. Basically, whenever he would commune in God's presence, what would happen to his face? It'd be shining. Like they couldn't even look at him. The Israelites couldn't even look at Moses. And it would terrify those around him so much that he would put a veil over his face. And that's just a reflection of the glory of God. Just a reflection. Saints, a resident who is so utterly holy requires a dwelling place that is equally holy. That's why the church and our very lives must be founded upon the gospel of Jesus Christ as given in the word. That's why a church, as a church we're to be sanctified and fitted together in his name, not our own. The only one 
who can build a temple that's properly holy to contain his presence is God himself. So God is the one who builds us up and he covers us with the righteousness of Christ so that even if the cedars of Lebanon, us, aren't very holy, we're seen as such because of the blood of Christ. And I don't want any of this to lead you to believe that being a temple of the Lord God is somehow a bad thing. Being built into a temple of the living God means that the God who loved you, who predestined you to adoption as a son, now dwells within you. He brings you peace. He brings you encouragement. He brings you closer to himself through the study and meditation of the word. This is a quote from John Gill. I love the way he puts it. For a particular church is an habitation of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And it being the habitation of God shows his great grace and condescension. In other words, coming down to us. And the great value and regard he has for it. And this makes it what? A desirable, delightful, and pleasant habitation to the saints. And hence it is a safe and a quiet one. And they are happy that dwell in it. And hither should souls come for the enjoyment of the divine presence. So we have been built into a holy temple. And if we are a holy temple, each of us individually, as well as us gathered, Trinity Baptist Church, then we ought to exist explicitly for the purpose of glorifying our God. And this has two implications, and then I'll be done. First and foremost, it means that our very existence, individually and as a church, is meant to glorify God and not ourselves. We shouldn't seek to lift up our own name, but rather lift up the name of God who has begun a new work in us and is bringing us to perfection. We can only give God the glory for that. And the second is another really important one, one that much of the modern evangelical church, I believe, is missing today. And it's that the temple is not for the entertainment of the worshiper. We aren't built into a temple of the living God so that we have something to do on Sunday mornings. You know, hear some good music, hear a nice talk, drink some coffee and socialize with our friends. No, we are built into a temple of the living God that we might come into the presence of the God who has redeemed us out of this kingdom of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his son, into the light. It's a serious thing. Now, does that mean we have to be all somber all the time about it? No, of course not, because as we read in Gill, it's a joyous thing to come into his presence. But church, never, never let it be said of us that we had a flippancy about the manner in which we worship God. It's his temple, not ours. And he alone decides what's worthy of it. And frankly, the only thing that is worthy of it is perfect holiness which unfortunately we aren't able to give. While the Lord tarries, and while we remain in this corrupted state, we can't be holy as God is holy. And therefore, we don't have any business being a part of that temple. But thanks be to God that he delivers us through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, covering us with his blood, which is far greater than gold. And that allows us to be built together in this way for this purpose. To be a dwelling place of God. If you don't know Christ this morning, I pray that you would seek him. It's his sacrifice on the cross for your sin and for mine that's allowed, that allows for all of this stuff that we've been talking about here today. 
He is the foundation of our faith. He's the foundation of our church. And we owe him all the glory. Don't let today go by without trusting in him and repenting of your sin. And then respond. Make the private declaration of faith in Christ a public one through baptism. Some of you have ne- maybe have never done that. Maybe you were baptized as a baby. I know there's coming to Kansas, I've realized there's a lot of Lutherans and Cap- former Lutherans and former Catholics or people who have come here from those backgrounds. Uh, maybe you were baptized as a baby. I'll be upfront with you that we believe that baptism must be preceded by faith. So you may still be in a position where you need to respond to that command. Repent and be baptized. I'd encourage you to come and find me, find Tony. Let's talk about how to get that done. Or maybe even you're a new believer, and you've been hearing me talk about baptism week in and week out, and it's finally wearing on you. What are you waiting for? Come to the waters. Come to the waters and declare your faith and your devotion to your king. And otherwise, respond in prayer. Respond in giving. Respond in song. Respond by submitting your life to him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you have provided Christ to be the foundation of the church. We know that we are sinful, sinful people who could not possibly stand in your presence because we've seen it from our heroes in the faith that they're just falling out of existence when they come into your glory. Lord, I pray that you would help us to realize that and to be all the more grateful for the blood of Christ which covers us so that we can be seen as righteous even as you continue to sanctify us and build us into the people that you want us to be. Lord, I pray that we would diligently seek you in your word. We would make our entire foundation built upon the word and Christ. And Father, build us up as a church. We thank you that you have blessed this church in the way that you have. And we pray that you would continue to bless it. We pray that we would be faithful to you in all of these things. And that as a, as a dwelling place of God, you would be pleased in our presence. And that our, our, our building would be pleasing to you. Lord, we love you and we pray all of these things in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.